0: what brother Charles was doing when he started (laughs) it's good to be here with you and uh, good to be back in Texas good to meet your pastor who started his ministry here 19 years ago today so give him a a round and it's good to um, I know Hillcrest I've preached at Hillcrest a number of times and uh, your pastor, Mike, is a good friend of mine. And Colin, he's been writing me. Where did Colin go? He's been writing me about you. I told him to give you a raise. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that'll happen when you get back home. But um, when you get there, tell him I'm praying for him. He's hurt his leg and uh, torn his hamstring. So he was uh, playing cards and pulled his hands, hamstring. And <laughs> told him he was getting old. And, but anyway, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Hayden Planetarium, but um, it's right there built onto the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. Now, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, Night at the Museum, you've seen where the Hayden Planetarium is. Just a few years ago, what they did was Uh, on their website, they put up an application for a crew to get on a spaceship and go out of space and to help colonize a new planet. Well, they were doing that in order to just raise the awareness of the planetarium and to get people interested to uh, come there to see some of the shows that they put on. What they did not expect was the response that they got. They got so many thousands they got 18,000 responses within an so many within an hour or two so many responses it shut the servers down and they were stunned at the thousands upon thousands of people that wanted to go sign up for a crew to go and populate another planet In fact, it was so noteworthy in New York that the University of New York, New York City University, the psychology department and the sociology department uh, came together and decided they were going to interview these people just to find out what in the world, why would somebody just take that literally and want to sign up to leave the world? Do you know the number one answer? Anxiety in this life. The anxiety, the stress, the discouragement that people face in the world today. Prior to the pandemic, it was depression that was the number one problem with Americans. Today, it's no longer depression. It is high anxiety. We are a people who are full of anxiousness to the point to where people are saying we're willing to leave this world For Another world and the Bible has something to say about that doesn't it if you've got your copy of God's word tonight I want you to look with me at 1st Thessalonians Just get to the first chapter and I'll I'll get you where I want you in just a few minutes Paul if you remember came over with that Macedonian call to The city of well, he stopped at Neapolis, which is right there on the water. He walks up to the city of Philippi And there in the city of Philippi, you recall, he's beaten with rods. He and Silas, they're beaten with rods. They're thrown in prison. You know the story of that, how that night at midnight, he and Silas were singing. Uh, There is an angel of the Lord that comes and shakes the place to the point to where their chains fall off, the gates are all opened, and the jailer, thinking that everybody had escaped, goes to take his life. The reason he does that is because the Romans, not only would they kill him when they found out about it, but what they would do is this, is that they would take everything he had away from his family, but if he killed himself and did it honorably, they would take care of his family until his family was gone. So he goes to take his own life. They stop him from doing that. And, of course, you remember Lydia is saved there. The jailer and his family are saved there. The church is started there, and they leave, and they go to Thessalonica. But they're not in Thessalonica, I can find, more than about three weeks. Uh, Three Sabbaths is what we're told, and then the Jews rise up in the city of Thessaloniki. They call it today Thessalonica. And uh, they uh, come looking for him uh, so that they can haul him before the authorities, but he gets out of town before they can get there. Goes to Berea. From Berea, they put him on a boat and send him down to Athens. From Athens, uh, he walks down to the city of Corinth. And eventually, uh, Silas and Timothy catch up with him. And they begin to share with him what's going on at the church in Thessalonica. So if you've got your Bibles open there, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians Chapter 1, you read in verse 2, Where he says to them, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind. Now look at this. They had a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope. Uh, It was a church that was seemingly busy about the work of the church and the kingdom of God. But there were some deep issues there. Now, go to chapter 3, if you would, or really on over to chapter 4. They were discouraged, much like people today are discouraged. Everywhere I go, I meet people who are desperately discouraged. And not just lay people, pastor, but I meet pastors. I talk to pastors almost on a daily basis who are suffering from great discouragement, anxiety, tension. We don't know what's going to happen. Our people have not come back. We're behind in every kind of way. We don't know if we're going to make it. We don't know what's going to take place. And so out of all of that, uh, Paul comes to address it in the church at Thessalonica. And so if you look with me down to verse 9, listen to what he's going to say to them. He comes to the heart of what he wants to say to them. He comes now and he says, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. In other words, he says, you love each other the way the people of God should love each other. Well, that's a great testimony right there about the church. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. What a wonderful thing it is when a church loves one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. You said you're going to Macedonia. Well, look at the church there. They are expressing brotherly love to all of the brothers and sisters in Christ. But now watch it what he does here. He comes and he says, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. There was a restlessness personally. Watch this. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Calm down. Just calm down. We want you to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. Pastor, I find that the people in the church that create the most trouble don't have enough to do. So they're in everybody else's business. Amen. Now listen, if I got to roll my own, it's going to be late getting back to Dallas tonight. He says, listen, settle down, calm down a little bit, and get out of everybody else's business. Look at what he says. In other words, work with your hands just as we commended you. Go get a job. Go do something. If you're never satisfied in the church, listen, go take some teenagers out and buy them some Mexican food and pour a little bit of yourself into them. Go get some singles and show that you care about them. Go find a young couple that needs a mentoring couple and go do something with them. But for heaven, get in the choir, get in the orchestra, but for heaven's sakes, calm down, stay out of everybody else's business and get a job. That's my message. When they call me to Congress, that's what I'm going to preach. They were restless personally. They were also full of this anxiety doctrinally. He comes and he says to them, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. They had doctrinal issues. Now, Paul wasn't there, I don't think, more than about three weeks. Now, here he's there. He's going to the Jewish synagogue. He's trying to share Christ with them. He is sharing Christ with others who are coming to Jason's house. He is working to support himself financially. He's leading people to Christ. He's discipling them as best he can. And three weeks, four weeks is not long enough to do something like that. And so as he's giving them all of the gospel, they get mixed up a little bit here eschatologically, soteriologically, Christologically. They get messed up with hermardiology, the doctrine of sin. They get messed up with thanatology, the doctrine of death. All of these things they get mixed up with, and they have begun to think this way. lost eternally in other words they believe that you had to be alive when Jesus Christ came back if you were gonna be saved now that's what's got them mixed up doctrinally that's why there's so much anxiety there but the third thing was there was a despair spiritually They had begun to to lose their hope. He comes uh, here and he speaks of their steadfast hope in chapter 1, but now in verse 13 of chapter 4, he says this, don't grieve as do the rest who have no hope. He says you shouldn't be like the world where you're just grieving and wringing your hands full of this anxiety, restless in your own life, and now there is this despair, this discouragement and he's going to encourage them. And this is how he's going to encourage them. Verse 14 If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They've got six feet to go before they catch up to us. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage, comfort one another with these words. Now, nobody preaches that passage anymore. They used to years ago, but now younger preachers will not preach that passage. They believe it's been abused, and it has, that it's been misused, and it has, and they will not preach, I know to be, the rapture of the church because that's exactly what the text says, and you say, well, now, wait a minute, the word rapture isn't there. You hold on. I'll show it to you in a little bit. It is there, but nobody preaches this. And I'm determined that this is the way Paul says, I'm to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus is coming again. I don't know anything more encouraging than that right there. Now, I want to do a little Bible study. You're going to have to bear with me, but I want to show you something that's not apparent in the English text. It's the word parakaleo. Uh, It's the little Greek word, if it's used as a noun, parakaleo, it refers to the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Para, parallel, kaleo, to call. One called alongside. Jesus used that word to describe the Holy Spirit. But when you use it as a verb, it means to encourage or to comfort. Or to urge. He uses this word seven times. Now I don't have to tell you seven is the number of. Okay. No, 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 no. Yeah. That's it. Y'all got it right. You got it right. It's the the number of perfection. But I want to show you this. Now go with me in the text for just a moment. I want you to look back at chapter 3 and verse 2. Because this is the first place that he uses it. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Now, that's what I want to do tonight. I just want to come and encourage you. That's the first time he use it. Now go to chapter 4 and verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. That word exhort, parakaleo. You can put encourage in every one of these, and it comes out right. We request and encourage you in the Lord Jesus. If you go down to verse 10, chapter 4, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, it's translated urge it, we encourage you, brethren, to excel still more. Then verse 18 of chapter 4, therefore comfort. That's the word It's translated comfort there. You've seen it translated encourage, exhort, urge, comfort. Encourage one another with these words. Now you come to chapter 5 verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you're enduring, just as you are doing. Verse 14, we urge you, we encourage you brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, seven times Paul uses that word. It's like an underground aquifer that flows, a river that flows underground, and it pops up here and here and here in the word encourage. He's trying to encourage these discouraged Christians. He's trying to give some encouragement to these who are full of anxiety, full of despair, full of depression, who are disheartened, And he comes and he basically says this, that confidence in the coming of Jesus Christ builds an assurance that will eliminate and evaporate the insecurities and anxieties of life. Now I want you to remember that. And I want to begin to work through this passage. What does it really mean? I'm not going to talk about Russia and Iran and Syria invading Israel. I'm not going to talk about China. I'm not going to talk about any of those things. I want you to simply listen to the text. Because I believe this will encourage the church if we catch what Paul is saying here. First of all, I can assure you that Christ will return majestically. Now watch the text, because that's what I'm preaching from. Beginning in verse 16, for the Lord himself, that's emphatic, the Lord himself, not anyone else, but the Lord himself, will descend from heaven. And now he's going to give three things. Each of these are introduced with a preposition, and it's a preposition of instrumentality. That is, with a shell. Uh, that is, with a voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Now, that instrumentality means this. This is how Christ, this is what Christ will do. This is what he will use when he comes back. He will come and use a shout. He will come and use the voice of an archangel. And he will come and use the trumpet of the Lord. Now, these three things are three separate Three separate things, three separate moments, but they all happen at once, yet you can distinguish between all three of them. Now, don't ask me to explain that, I can't. But that's what the grammar tells me here, is that that's what he's going to do. With a shout, at the same time, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. All three at one time and yet distinct. Now, let's look at that. He's going to come back with a shout. Now, if you look that word up and you begin to think about it and you read about it, it is not just somebody screaming. It is a shout of direction. It's a shout of command. It's a military term, and it describes how a military leader speaks to his troops. That is, it's the way a general would command his army in battle and it sounds majestic now I have no idea what it was like when Napoleon led those French troops against the Austrians at Austerlitz but when he gave the command to seize the bridge I don't know what it sounded like but I guarantee you it was majestic I have no idea what it was like when Washington at Yorktown gave the command to Rochambeau and the Lafayette for them to fire their weapons at the fort there at Yorktown against Cornwallis, and they eventually defeated Cornwallis there and won the American Revolution. I don't know what Washington sounded like that day, but I can tell you this, I guarantee it sounded majestic. I have no idea what it was like when Pickett rode up and down the tree line speaking to all 15,000 of those Confederate troops about to race across a mile, open mile of ground up into the teeth of the cannons of the Union, but he spoke to them, and I don't know what it sounded like, but I bet it was something majestic. I have no idea what it was like that night, that evening, before the 101st took off from out of uh, Britain when they were going to drop just before the Allied invasion of Normandy. But I can imagine that whatever it was that Eisenhower said, it sounded majestic. And I can tell you this, there's coming a day where we're going to hear a shout. And when we hear it, it's going to be majestic. He's going to come with a shout, but then he's going to come with the voice of an archangel. I don't know what an archangel sounds like. I know what an angel sounds like. I wake up next to one every morning. Uh, but I don't, see, wasn't that sweet? She's not even here. Today. It didn't do me any good. But I don't know what an archangel sounds like. Michael is the archangel. He disputes about the body of Moses, we're told in Jude. I have no idea what Michael. I know that every time an angel speaks in Scripture, he speaks to different people, and they understand him in their own language. There's no difficulty in understanding an angel. It always seems to be very clear, very plain. There's no problem with dialect. There's no problem with accent. Every time an angel speaks, it seems to, well, John saw the angel, and he said, I fell at his feet as dead. Daniel saw the angel, and he said, he fell down at his feet as if he were dead. I have no idea what an archangel sounds like, but I can tell you this, I guarantee you it sounds majestic if it sounds like anything. And then he comes with the trumpet of the Lord, the trumpet of God. He comes with that trumpet of God, and that's not just a usual trumpet there. Now, don't confuse this with the trumpets in the book of Revelation, and uh, don't confuse this with the second coming of Christ, This is the rapture of the church right here. The second coming will come later. But he comes for his bride. He comes for the church here, and he's going to come with the trumpet of God. In fact, if you look back a few pages to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you get back there, you're going to read about this same trumpet. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that he will come in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be changed and we will all be changed. Verse 52, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 says this. "Uh, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, that's the same word, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. It's the same word for trumpet. It's not the shofar that the priest would blow for the feast days. In fact, let me show you what this is. Just take your Bibles, put your finger there in 1 Thessalonians. Go with me back to Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10, and listen, if you will, to what the Lord says to Moses. Numbers chapter 10, verse 1 says, The Lord spoke further to Moses, saying, Make yourself two trumpets of silver, of hammered work, You shall make them, and you shall use them. Now, let me me show you something before I finish that verse. There are two trumpets of silver out of the tabernacle, and the silver out of the tabernacle was the silver of redemption that Hebrews had paid when they gave birth to the firstborn. God said, all the firstborn are mine. And in order to redeem the firstborn, you'll have to bring five shekels of silver to the tabernacle. It was a remembrance of how God saved the firstborn. He redeemed the firstborn back in Egypt if every home was under the blood, and those that were under the blood did not experience the death that the Egyptians did. And so they take the silver of redemption and he hammers two trumpets out of them. You shall use them. Now watch this. What what were these trumpets used for? They were used for summoning the congregation and having the camp set out. Now see, if y'all were Pentecostal, y'all would be running around the room right now. Did you get that? It's the silver trumpet that sounded And when the Hebrews heard it, they all got up, they packed up, and they moved out. There is coming a day where we're going to hear not just a shout, not just the voice of the archangel, but the trump of God, and it will be a signal, move out, people of God. We'll go. In that moment, we'll go. Now, you know, all of that speaks of our majestic God, whom we in our day have lost all sense of awe. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. On 105-day, I don't like wearing a tie and a coat. Uh, It's my age, I just have to tell you. It's my age. I don't mind dressing casual, and that's not what I'm talking about. But I am going to talk to you about the fact that in our churches anymore, there is no sense of reverence or awe. None. It's something that we've lost. Something that is gone. Have you ever had an experience where, I don't know how to describe it, but where your whole body feels like it's electrified for just a second? Uh, not long ago, I was pre- this past fall, I was preaching in, at the New Mexico State Convention. And uh, I had to fly into Durango and rent a car and drive down into New Mexico. I drove into Durango. I flew into Durango. They gave me a car. I walked out. It was a Dodge. What's that little Dodge, that fast thing that they've got? Yes. Yes. I'd never driven one before. I I liked it. My wife wasn't with me. There's a lot of flat roads out in New Mexico lot of lot of straightaways i got in that thing and cranked it up you know and i thought the boy's still alive i said i'm gonna get this thing up to 140 it'll do 140 that's what it had on the hickey jig you know that's a tech that's a greek term you have to go to seminary to learn that it's a it, it, on the thing it had 140 on the speedometer I pulled out of there with every intention of just flooring that Dodge Charger and just reliving my 16-year-old life. And I came up on a hill, and there stretched out in front of me were the Rocky Mountains, snow-capped. And for that one split second, I felt this rush of just, you couldn't catch your breath you just looked at it. You felt like every nerve in your body was on fire. Have you ever had one of those moments where you see something? I felt that way the first time I came around uh, these Judean hills and I looked down on the Sea of Galilee. I had that feel. Do you know that God created you to have that feeling and not another thing in creation experiences that but a human? If I'd have had my wife's dog with me, do you know what he would have done? He'd have just sniffed. That's all he would have done. He would have never felt that. If I'd have had a horse or a cow, they never look at that and think, my, how majestic. They don't experience that. You and I experience that. Abraham Maslow, the Jewish um, Austrian uh, psychiatrist, called it peak experiences, when you just have this rush all of a second where you just about cannot breathe and you experience this awe when you see something. Let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ comes back and we hear that shout Uh and we hear the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, we're going to feel that in that moment and it will never, ever disappear we will live for eternity as if our body is electrified from then on when he comes back he's coming back majestically now let me show you the second thing and the second thing is this is that when he comes back you can be assured he's coming back triumphantly now listen to what is said in verse 17 then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, that's the chapter. That's the verse. This is the passage that deals with Jesus coming back for his church, or what we call the rapture of the church. Now, you don't have to believe that. Most I find most people today, they just don't believe that anymore. Listen, let me tell you, you don't have to. you still go to heaven, uh, but you're, you know, you can be wrong if you want to be wrong. Um, But now look at this, look at this real close. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Now that word right there in the Greek is arpazo. It is translated into Latin in the Vulgate by the word rapturo. Which is translated into the English rapture. Now, what is rapture? What does that word arpazo right there mean? Well, if you go and you get a key to the the linguistic key to the Greek New Testament by Roniker and Rogers, you will read in there that it means to be snatched up with such force that you're not able to resist. You ever remember your dad coming in and saying, come here to me. That's it. That's the word. You were snatched up with such force you couldn't resist it. There is coming a day when Christ will appear, and when he does, we will be caught up with such a force that we couldn't resist it if we tried with all of our strength. That's the word right there. That's the word where we get rapture from our podzo rapturo caught up snatched up with this great force now listen to what he says because now let me go back up to verse 14 and 15 because there he says if we believe that jesus died and rose again in other words if you're saved if you know jesus christ is lord and savior even so god will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in jesus now, I don't know if you've lost anybody dear to you. You may be here this evening. You've lost a husband. You've lost a wife. You've lost a brother or sister. You've lost a mom or a dad. Um, heaven help if you've lost a child. Uh, we have 16 grandchildren. Um, we, we, were to ha- we, we really have 17, but one's with the Lord. And uh, 16 that are living. But I shared with my sweet daughter... I said, honey, don't don't grieve yourself like those who don't know better. I said, because there's coming a day when you'll see that child again. And we as a family will all gather together around him or her and we will rejoice. And we will spend eternity not only with Jesus but with one another and with that child. I buried my parents six and a half months apart. I buried my sister last year. I have one sister that's still living. She doesn't even know who she is, much less who I am. I'll bury her as well. I buried my father-in-law, buried my mother-in-law. I'm at the age and the point in my life now where there's more in heaven waiting for me than there are here on this earth interested in me. So heaven has a greater appeal to me now than it ever has before. And he says when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring those, that husband, that wife, that son, that daughter, that brother or sister, that mom or that dad, he's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. If they were saved, they will come back with him. That is their spirit. A lot of people want to know, well, what happens when you die? You go to be with Jesus. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I don't know how much clearer that can be. Jesus told the man, the thief on the cross, he said today, not after a 1,000 years or 2,000 years or after limbo. My stars, the Catholics don't even believe limbo anymore. Not after purgatory, not in any of that. He said today you'll be with me in paradise. Paul said to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. It means to be literally at home. If you look at that passage, the word is in there, oikos, to be at home. Home is a place where in all honesty, when I go home Thursday, I leave here and I fly to Memphis and I lecture for two days up in the seminary there. When I get up Thursday morning, I'm going back home. I don't even get ready to go home. I just go home. You just go home. It's where you're comfortable. It's where you're welcome. It's where you fit in. So when a brother or sister die in Christ, when our loved ones die in Christ, they go to be immediately in the presence of Jesus Christ. And he's going to bring them with him. I pastored my first church out of Southwestern was up in Chesapeake, Virginia. It was in... um, very transitional neighborhood. We had Jamaican gangs there. We had I'd go to work about once a week, and I'd find a, a, a lady beat up and in, sleeping in the doorway of the church, and I'd have to get her up and get the secretary to care for and get her into a, a place somewhere where they could care for her. It was a very transitional, rough, difficult, hard neighborhood. There were only two little restaurants that were there. One was the Chinese restaurant, and I was too scared to eat there. I didn't know what they had killed. (laughs) Uh, The the other was a Kentucky Fried Chicken. So I'd get up from the desk, and I'd go down to the uh, the Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I'd get a box of chicken. Well, it was forever being held up. They had just been in there, held the place up. The cops were on the way. You just can't imagine something like that unless you walk into the middle of it. They... They uh, had this guy walk in with a gun. He said, take all the money, stuff it down in a chicken box, and give it to me. And in the meantime, while they were doing that, he heard the sirens, and he just grabbed the box and ran out. And they saw him running, so they knew that was the guy. So they stopped him, grabbed him, brought him back, put the box back up on the counter, and discovered that what he had grabbed was not the box of money but a box of chicken. (laughs) Now, let me tell you something, Christian. When you die, in that split moment, when you die, if you know Jesus Christ, you can be assured, Satan, just like in Jude, who comes for the body of Moses, comes for your body as well. And in that moment, you're going to be (laughs) snatched up. By the hand of Jesus Christ. And all Satan's going to be left with is a box of bones. You'll be gone. He says this, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Then you come back to verse 17. We who are alive and remain, he says that again, are caught up together with them. Those that have already died preceded us will join them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now the question here is this, because the passage keeps saying, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. Did you hear it? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Have you settled that issue? Because let me tell you something. If you don't and you die, that's it. There is no more hope. There's not another chance. There's not a second opportunity. There's the opportunity now. This is it. You know, yesterday, brother, I had a, 17 18 year old beautiful teenage girl came and gave her life to jesus christ and a hundred year old woman did too now that's from one extreme to the other isn't it and the question is have you i i, I went to the hospital just the other week about two weeks ago to visit a man he's from Gulfport, mississippi and a pastor he used to be his pastor uh, said, called me and said, hey, would you go see him, just check on him and tell him that uh, I'm, I'm just interested in how he is. Went in there. He was having a heart transplant and a kidney transplant. Two. They, they got his heart. They walked in, and they told him, they said, we've got a heart for you. We're going to start prepping you for your, to go into surgery now. We've got the heart. We've got a great heart. It's the heart of a 20-year-old. Now, I want you to listen to what the doctor said to him. Cause this guy's up in his 50s he said you're getting an unseasoned heart I'd never heard that before I've been with tons of people that have had heart transplant never heard that the doctor said you're getting an unseasoned heart he said what do you mean I'm getting an unseasoned heart he says you've you've been through experiences and stress and anxieties and bacteria and viruses and things that this young heart has never experienced and you need to know you're getting an unseasoned heart. Do you know that's what happens when you come to Jesus Christ? Do you know what Jeremiah says? in Jeremiah, he says he's going to reach in there and take out that heart of stone. And he's going to put back in you a heart of flesh, an unseasoned heart that knows no sin. Now, let me ask you, Have you got a new heart? Have you been to Jesus? And has he taken out that heart of stone and given you a new heart? If so, when you die, you're going to be with him. Now, let me give you the last thing. Now, I'm going to preach now. I've finally come to where I want to be. You can be assured that he's coming back personally personally that's why I made the comment in verse 16 for the Lord himself will descend from heaven the Lord himself it's emphatic it's as if he's saying for the Lord for the Lord will descend from heaven it's the Lord himself it's emphatic in the Greek he's he's stressing that it is the Lord who is going to come and who is he coming for he is coming for you personally He's coming for you individually. He is coming for all of us, his children, collectively. Do you know in Thessalonians, this is at the end of every chapter? Now, let me just show you this. Go to chapter 1 and verse 10 and watch what Paul writes there. He writes and he says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, Who rescues us from the wrath to come? Look at the end of chapter 2, down at verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown or exaltation of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? At the end of every chapter is a word about the second coming of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I've I've just been preaching to you out of the last part of chapter 4. Look at the last part of chapter 5. And look at where he says this. He comes and he says For the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved and complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's over and over and over in this little letter that he speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ. And you say he's coming for me personally. Yes. And I want to show you this. Now watch this progression here. Back in chapter 1 and verse 10. Paul writes, and he says, to wait for his son from heaven. Ek uranon. Uranon, uranos is heaven. Ek means means that he is coming out from heaven. He is coming out. Now look at what Paul is saying in chapter 1. He's saying we are waiting for Christ who is coming out of heaven, ek uranon, out of heaven, now look at what he says over here, when you get over here in verse 16, he's going to say, he will descend from heaven, op uranu, op is from, ek is out of, op is from, uranu, uranos, heaven, he is going to come from heaven, it's as if Paul's perspective has changed. He comes from this, we're standing waiting for him to come out of heaven, but now he comes and it's as if Paul is standing over the throne of God and he sees Jesus stand up and step out on a cloud and he goes from heaven. Paul is making the point that whether it is out of heaven or from heaven's perspective, it is from heaven, Jesus isn't sending the vice president to get you. He's not sending an ambassador. He's not sending a representative. He's not sending an angel. He himself will come out of heaven, from heaven, to receive us as he catches us up. And he says, encourage each other with that word. Jesus is coming again. You want to see it in the Old Testament? Well, I'm going to show it to you anyway. Watch this. Go back to the last chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. Joseph is going to die. Isn't that... Isn't that the way it is? Joseph, who was so badly mistreated by his brothers, his brothers show up, and he shows them such love and compassion and care. And those old stinking brothers won't die, but he dies. Joseph is going to die. So he pulls his brothers together. Now watch what he does here. Verse 24 of Genesis chapter 50, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely take care of you. Listen to this. God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you. Says it now twice. And you shall carry my bones up from here (laughs) to there. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years. He was embalmed, placed in a coffin in Egypt, but he was never buried. The coffin of Joseph sat out for 400 years. One generation after another, after another, after another for 400 years, They would walk by. Dads would take their children by the hand, walking them to school, and they would walk by that box, and the little boy would say to Dad, Dad, what is that box over there? Well, that's the bones of Joseph. I've told you the story of Joseph. Well, that's where Joseph is buried. Well, why don't don't they bury that thing, Dad? Because Joseph told us that one day God was going to come, and he was going to take us from here to the land of promise. And he said, when he does, you take my bones from here to over there. He couldn't see it the way we see it looking at 1 Thessalonians 4. That when God comes from us, for us, it's not gonna be just this same old body or a box of bones. But it will be an incorruptible, immortal body that God will give to his people. You see, there is a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, you can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us A dwelling place there. Stand with me and sing it. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Now bow your heads with me. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Your pastor's going to be standing here at the front. We'll go out with an invitation and a song. But I want to give you the opportunity to respond. Maybe you're here tonight. You've never done what I talked about in this sermon. And that is put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. To as many as believed on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons and the daughters of God. That's the invitation tonight. Come to Jesus Christ. Others of you here tonight, listen. You've lived in such anxiety. You you live all bottled up in turmoil and frustrated and sometimes bitterness has gotten in there and life has become nothing but a frustration for you. And you call yourself a child of God. Let me tell you something. God has it all in his hands. Every bit of it. All of it are in the hands of God. Your life, your future, this country, this world, everything that's going on. Let me tell you something. None of it has caught God off guard. He is the God who is supreme and sovereign. And Paul says, think On this he's coming for you personally are you ready as we sing this hymn of invitation I want you to respond I want you to come if it's just to kneel at this altar if it's to come and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ I beg you to do that i plead with you to come to christ tonight i don't know that you'll ever have another chance i i had a man just two weeks ago three weeks ago that i turned around looked at spoke to smiled and that week he passed away if you ever stop to think this may be your last chance in church you come and do what god's calling you to do